Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 11. We began to look at this last paragraph uh, two weeks ago, and I pick it up again this morning. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by re- back by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering around on deserts, in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect." This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we come to this passage this morning, I'm reminded that there is one word often used in newspapers. Uh, If from time to time you might read the New York Times, uh, look for an intellectual article here or there, uh, you would find that this word is definitely a non-you. It's not. It's not a acceptable word. It's the word meta-narrative. So, I thought I'd just start with something simple. (laughs) Meta-narrative. Do you know what a meta-narrative is? Well, it's a story narrative. It's a big story that covers everything. The Bible's meta-narrative is the story of the Creator's history with His creatures and His gracious communication to His creatures. That's the story that we find in the Bible, and that story shapes the way we look at the world. It has shaped the way the Western world, even though they don't believe in God, and most didn't ever believe in God, uh, even though they did not perhaps trust in Christ as their Savior, nonetheless it shaped some of the ways in which, as Westerners we used to think. That is up until the 19th century. In the 19th century, that meta-narrative that was shaped at least by the Bible was jettisoned in favor of modernity, the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, there was a desire to have a new story, grand story, driven by a a concept of a self-created, self sustaining Western 
approach to science and politics and economics that would transform not only the West, but all of the world. And that grand plan of modernity began to fall apart round about the year 1900 with the death of Nietzsche, the great prophet of modernity's decadence. And from Nietzsche's time, what we've discovered is an increasing falling away of any sense that there is a grand narrative. Postmodernity came and postmodernity has gone, and something else is in its place, which is very much harder to identify since everyone now creates their own narrative and puts it on Facebook or on Instagram. There is no coherent story in which to understand the world of our day. And what we have here in Hebrews chapter 11 is a reminder of the biblical meta-narrative, the biblical storyline. Here in this, in this grand chapter, we begin right at the very beginning of man's history with creation, and it ends pointing us to the new creation, that is, the new heavens and the new earth, and embraced within it, we discover that the really significant things that have happened in the story of the world and in the history of the world is the relationship between the Creator and His creatures and God's communication to His creatures and their response of faith in God. That's what this chapter is about. And we come to the end of the chapter in this section that we started to look at last time. We've seen this description of a series of witnesses. We, just, we have described their, their deeds of faith. We see them deliver, delivered in many different ways. We see the inner dynamic of faith which enabled them to overcome. But faith is not only interested in dynamics and deliverances and deeds. All of these spectacular works and victories are one thing, but frankly, they don't always describe your life and mine, do they? And so this last part shows us how faith works to enable us to endure suffering. And the transition point in this, in this paragraph, this large paragraph, is in verse 36, 35, and it's very striking. It kind of stands there on its own, linking what has come before and what is now going to come after it. Women received their dead back by resurrection. That's what it says, literally, verse 35. Now, there's obviously a reference back. There's a reference back, for example, to the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Uh, these women, there were two women, each of whom benefited from the ministry of these two great prophets. One, 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah befriends the widow of Zarephath, the village, and rents a room in her home. And when her son dies, he is able by God to, re to resuscitate her son and bring him back to life. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha, his successor, befriends a Shunammite woman. And when her son dies, he brings him back from death to life. 
And both these stories emphasize this powerful theme that God can and does bring resurrection. God is the God of resurrection. When Jesus says to Martha, Martha, I am resurrection and life, he is echoing what has been revealed about God throughout the Old Testament. God is resurrection. He is life in himself. But these miraculous supernatural acts in history were not simply matters of fact. They were intimations of immortality. They stand alongside other stories you find in the Old Testament. The rescue of Isaac, who was as good as dead, when his father already speaks in the past tense, as it were, of his being dead. Or the preservation of Daniel when he's thrown into the den of ravenous lions and his life is spared. Or the three Hebrews who are thrown into the fiery furnace and instead of being consumed are delivered by the presence of that fourth figure within the flames. Resurrection preserved through what is certain death to life. One of the great themes of the Bible. And those themes find their fullest expression in the Bible, in the resurrection of Jesus, and by extension, in the resurrection of Jesus' people at the end of history. The resurrection, that resurrection, will not simply do what the prophets did to those women in those two villages so long ago. They will not simply deliver us back into the existence we had before we died. No, that resurrection will deliver us into the eternal life of God Himself. They will deliver us into the paradise, because when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So, John Owen is right when he says that the resurrection of the dead is the capstone of the whole structure of biblical religion. It is this that, that gives us the real hope that believers share together. When Peter is writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, we have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ours is a living hope. And without the resurrection, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we would be, of all people, the most to be pitied. Now, that is, if you like, fundamental key now to the, to the writer's argument in this passage. What is it that gives us hope? Well, it's the hope of the resurrection. And you see how he teases it out here. He says the hope of the resurrection helps us to endure torture. Torture. Some were tortured, he writes, refusing to accept release so that they might attain to a better resurrection. The word Resurrection is repeated in the, in the passage. Now, this word torture comes from the word tympanon, from which we get timpani. It means a drum. It means a drum. And the victim was stretched out like the skin on a drum. He was beaten, stretched out, his body, every muscle, pulled as on a rack, and then was hammered and thudded with all kinds of instruments as a form of torture. 
the author is thinking, I think, of the Maccabean martyr, Eliezer. This elderly scribe and seven of his companions were offered the chance of life if they would renounce the law of God and their allegiance to God. But they refused, and together they went to the wreck. You see, the devil is a murderer. From the beginning, the Bible says, he has no hesitation in aiding and abetting the contrivancing of men and women of many iterations of torture designed to destroy lives and derail faith. That ancient prince of hell is bent on venting his infernal rage and malice and revenge upon the church of Christ. They were tortured, it says. But what we have to get this morning, what we have to grasp this morning, is that this really is all the devil can do. This really is the extent of his powers. All he can do is target your human flesh, that is, your physical body. He has no power over your soul, no power over your relationship with God. And He will let all hell loose against your physical existence in order to try to get you to renounce your faith and to go God's way. So when we're faced then with torture, how do we endure? We keep our eyes on the promise of eternal glory. We remember that our present troubles are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. We remind ourselves that nothing in all creation, death and the sword, cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus promises to be our very present help in time of trouble, that He is our strong deliverer, that He is our exceeding great reward. The way faith worked in the case of Eliezer was that he refused to accept release. In other words, the devil doesn't care about your body. He's indifferent to your pain, but he wants to bring down your soul. And so he offers incentives. Well, you can die a, a less painful way, or you can get off with this trial, or, or there's a clause in which you can get out of the difficulties that you're in. If only you will swear your allegiance to the world system, or, or to me, or to anything other than to King Jesus. The devil is always doing that. That's why the Lord Jesus said to Peter, you're going to be tried, but I'm going to pray for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. We have an intercessor. We have a great high priest who prays for us, who upholds us, that our faith will not fail. And we must look to Him. We must apply to Him. We must ask Him to intercede for us. The hope of resurrection enables us to endure torture. The faith 
the hope of resurrection enables us to endure testing. Look at this next clause. Others suffered taunting or mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. You see, there are things that don't lead to death. Great trials of our faith, nonetheless. Satan is always looking for our utter destruction, but sometimes he is restrained in what he can do. And in that restraint, he does what he can do. He encourages others to taunt us or to whip us or to put chains on us and to imprison us. And let's be clear, taunts are cruel, mocking God and Christ and mocking our faith or our lack of faith or our faults and failures, taunting with fake accusations which always sting and sometimes by the devil's guile sometimes stick, the taunts of the evil one. John Owen says, the world is never more witty, nor doth more please itself than when it can invent reproachful names and terms and crimes and hurl them at the believer. We should be ready for such times. If these times have not hit you yet, we should be ready for such things to happen. How they will come, how long they will last, we cannot tell. But we can be ready. And we can be ready to discover that the taunt is often more hard to bear than the whips that they use. Thirdly, the hope of resurrection enables us to endure terrors. Look at this next group. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. He describes three different ways of being killed. (laughs) The wicked mind of fallen humanity is always contriving different ways to kill people. And although we should never seek persecution by being awkward or being nasty, we must be aware that it might cross our path Because as the Apostle Paul says, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus says to us, if they persecuted me, be sure of this, they will persecute you also. And in all of this, God will give us grace. Let me remind you of that. As your days, so shall your strength be, says the Lord. Whatever faces you, there is grace. You know, uh, previous generations used to talk of dying grace, dying grace. And what they meant by that was there is a principle found in the Bible that God gives us grace for what confronts us in our lives. So the Apostle Paul, you remember, has a thorn in his flesh. He prays to God that God would take away the thorn, this, whatever this thing was. It's, it's left undefined, and that's a good thing because if it had been defined, we would read that passage and we would think to ourselves, that was Paul's problem and it's not mine, therefore the promise Paul got doesn't apply to me. That's what we're like, isn't it? But God leaves it undefined so that we read about his thorn in the flesh and we read what God says to him. 
I'm not going to take your thorn away, but my grace is sufficient for you. In the midst of this problem you're facing, in the midst of this trial you're enduring, there is grace to meet you at the point of your need. So there's a principle there. This is how we understand. This is how we use things in the Bible. We look at the principle that they give us, and we extrapolate from the principle to the situations that arise in our lives. They're not always like for like. It's a kind of childish way of looking at the Bible. The Bible gives us principles, and by good and necessary consequence, we draw the principle out. And here's where we get dying grace. Death is the last enemy that we will face. And God will give us grace to die well for Jesus. Now, of course, death involves terror. And some death involves terror in the most acute sense. When Nicholas Ridley was tied to the stake to be burned in Oxford in 1555, he was terrified. His friend, Hugh Latimer, who was already ignited and was burning in his nether regions already were ablaze, tried to encourage his friend and said this to him, Fear not, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, even a time for humor, by the way, we shall this day light such a candle in England, which will, I trust, by God's grace, never be put out. There's terror. Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he was to go to the stake, was terrified, and he signed a recantation. And he was so convicted by God that he, when he got to the stake, he thrust his hand, he said, with this hand, I sign my recantation. With this hand, I withdraw my recantation. And he thrust his hand and arm into the flame to demonstrate his repentance before all who were there. We're only human. We get bound with terror. We're afraid of death. Death is the last enemy. But there will be grace. C.H. Spurgeon, one of the great Victorian preachers, was asked by somebody once, are you prepared, Mr. Spurgeon, to be burnt at the stake as those people that you often refer to? Mr. Spurgeon, who was very straightforward and honest, said, well, since you ask me, sitting as I am in this very comfortable chair, uh, I could not think that I can confidently say that I am. However, I believe that should the time come when I would face such a choice, I believe God would give me grace to burn for my Savior. So, beloved, that's what we believe. So, I don't want you to dwell on the burnings that I've mentioned or the beheadings I don't want you to go to bed tonight and think about this because that's not helpful for you. I want you to dwell on God gives grace for the trial. Because if you think about all those other things, you won't get grace for thinking about those things because they're likely not going to happen to you. And there's a principle that you must always remember, and it's this. God does not give grace for anticipated trials. Okay? He doesn't do that. 
So don't worry about them, but believe that God will give you grace for whatever comes along in your life. The text talks, the text talks, the text talks next about those who were stoned. Stoning was used in Israel for blasphemers, idolaters, false prophets. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death. People took up stones to kill Jesus. People took up stones to kill the Apostle Paul. Do you know that many of the prophets of the Old Testament were stoned to death by their fellow countrymen? Zechariah was for faithfully preaching that God was going to judge His people. Jeremiah was taken down to Egypt and was stoned to death by his fellow Jews. Isaiah was sawn in two with a wooden saw. In the Jewish work, the martyrdom of Isaiah, very old work, it refers to his ordeal. Isaiah neither cried aloud nor wept, but his lips spoke with the Holy Spirit until he was sawn in two. Others were killed with a sword. The apostle Paul would be. And others of the prophets were killed with a sword. There are terrors. Jesus said about the prophets to the people of his day, he said, which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? It was a risky thing being a a minister in Israel (laughs) or a prophet in Israel. At least you can't burn me to the stake. There's grace for every trial. Fourthly, the hope of resurrection enables us to endure trials of every kind. It goes on to talk about those who wandered around in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. They were wandering around. They were homeless. They were going from one place to another. The apostle Paul describes that kind of life. He had to to leave one city and go on to another city because he was being hounded by the people. Many of the saints of God have found themselves in the worst extremities of poverty, suffering, and deprivation. But even in the midst of that, they had their faith. They had the one in whom they believed. When Jesus talks about the enemy coming for him to take him away, he he says to his disciples that even if they forsake him, he will not be alone, that the Father would be with him. You say, well, that's obvious because the Father and the Son cannot be separated. Well, here's what I want to say to you, beloved. You have the Holy Spirit with you, and Jesus says clearly that if the Holy Spirit is with you and in you, the Father and the Son are with the Holy Spirit with you and in you. The whole of the Trinity is with you in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, in whatever trial you find yourself in, however bad it is, however deep it is, God is with you in that trial. It is one of the mysteries of life. It's one of the great mysteries of history that the slaves in this country, in the depths of their misery and mistreatment, even by fellow Christian people, found in the depths of their misery, they found a living Savior to be their companion of whom they could sing. They found their rest 
and their hope and their joy in Him. Isn't that amazing? Because He's with His people. Even when they're unjustly treated, He's with His people. He never abandons His people, ever. St. Ambrose, one of our church fathers, writes this, they were most strong when thought to be most weak, and they did not shrink from the mockings of men because they looked for heavenly rewards. They on whom the beauty of eternal light was shining did not dread the darkness of the dungeon. They did not desire to be rescued from death for they looked forward to being raised to life in Christ. Now, I want to end by pointing out two comments that the writer makes about these great people of faith. He says that they are those of whom the world is not worthy. What do we mean by the world? We don't mean this earth on which we live. The earth was made for creatures like you and I, for humans. The earth was made for Christians like you and I, God's people. We belong to all these other people in the world. We really can't select which of these people we should like or not like, or belong to or not belong to. We, we belong to everybody in this world. We are we share the humanity of one race God made every nation of men. So we belong. Now, when we use the word world, the way he's using the word world here, he's not talking about this earth and the people of this earth. He is talking about the world system. The Bible talks about the spirit of this world or the God of this world and the people of this world. And by the word world, he's including culture. He's including the, the goals, the ideas, the aspirations, the, de the desires, the values that are held by men and women who cannot see beyond the sun. The world has a high opinion of itself. The world considers itself to be the setters of all trends, the definers of all value, values, the judge of all opinions, the criteria of all success, the epitome of all that's good. The world sees itself like that. And the world considers the people of God as not worthy of it. Not worthy of it. But God reverses the opinion of the world, of whom the world was not worthy. What can we say about the world? We can say that the world has no consciousness of things not seen. The world has no consciousness of things not seen. That is, the world has no consciousness of God. It may use the name God. It may go into holy orders in which it may work on God's behalf or in God's name. It may ascend the pulpit to teach others in the name of God. 
It may lead a Bible study in which the name of God is used, but they do not know God. One of the bravest people in the world today is a cardinal who has just recently exposed evil within the higher reaches of the Roman church. We don't say that in any self-congratulatory way. We're just not as visible because we don't have a centralized structure as they do. But let me just tell you that Protestant churches are no better. Our mega churches are imploding with all kinds of things, just as bad as anything that we're seeing coming out of Rome these days. And one of the things that has been said and written by this and other cardinals is this. These men in these positions do not believe in God. They may be going through the routine, but they don't believe in God. Why do they not believe in God? They don't believe that God sees them in their bedroom. They don't believe that God sees them in what they do behind the scenes. They don't believe that God hears them when they concoct their schemes and plans to destabilize the church. They don't believe in God. The world has no consciousness of what it cannot see. And the world has no conviction of things hoped for. That doesn't mean the world doesn't hope for things. It hopes for world peace. If you've ever entered into the Miss America Beauty Contest, you've probably said that. You hope for world peace. Or just keep that in your... That's a good, a novel one to use if you ever are. Not that I would know about these things. It hopes for world peace. It hopes to save the environment. It hopes to end poverty. It hopes to improve the quality of life. These are good things in themselves. I'm not critiquing the things themselves. But the world doesn't see beyond those things. It hopes for those things. That's, that's the level of its expectation for the future. Nothing beyond, nothing above, nothing greater. The world is without God and without hope, the Bible says. And yet he is what Scripture says by way of verdict. Those the world most despises, those it subconsciously fears, those whom the world hates like it hated their master, these are those of whom the celebrities and the power brokers of this world, the great and the mighty and the wealthy and the rulers of this world, are not worthy not worthy of the humblest believer, not worthy of the most obscure saint. These poor, despised wanderers whom they treat as the offscouring of the earth. The world is not worthy of them. And it's always been that way. It's always been that way. This is what the Bible teaches. There are only two societies of hum human beings. And these two societies are not, are not 
described by way of their gender or their race or their color or their bank account or their education or their social status. They are, dis- they are differentiated only, only by this. They are of the world or they are of God. That and that alone is the criteria by which humanity is divided. And we've got to be careful, I think, as a church, not our church, our church as well as all the churches, not to let the world invade the church. The world has an agenda. The world has ideas. The world has its people that it insinuates into offices within the church in order to bring the churches down, in order to cover sin, in order to create safe spaces in which sin can be bred, in order to deceive the people of God, in order to deceive the elect. And sometimes the world makes its way into my heart, your heart. So the things that that it finds important become important to us. We used to sing an old gospel song when I was growing up. Tell me the old, old story. When you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. That's what we need to do for one another. We've been sidetracked, sucked into the world with its ways of thinking. We need others who come alongside us and bring us back to the gospel. The second thing we're told here is that all these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised, God having provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let me break this down, I think, into three parts. It talks about them, all these And it says this, all these are commended for their faith. Who commends them? God commends them. Who sees their faith? God sees their faith. Who recognizes what they've done? God recognizes and acknowledges what they've done. You may be in your small corner just holding on to Christ. Be assured of this, my beloved friend. God sees and commends. Then it talks about us. And we include ourselves in the us of this text. What does it say about us? It says, they did not receive what was promised, God having provided something better for us. We're not better than them. But God has provided something better for us. What does it mean they did not receive the promise? Of course they received the promise. Over and over again, God repeated His promise. But what they didn't receive was the fulfillment of the promise. They did not see the Messiah. They did not recognize the Messiah. Messiah did not come in their lifetime. They did not know His name, Yeshua, Jesus. The Lord saves The Lord is salvation, but we do. God reserves something better for us. We we have a better perspective than they did. Actually, their faith is more impressive than ours. 
because they didn't know Jesus' name. They didn't know about His resurrection from the dead like we do. They had, they had images and, and figures and, and pictures and, and experiences, but they weren't the final thing. We live in a better place since we know more than they knew. But here's the last thing. It says in this text something about them and us. And this is what it says. We are inseparable. We are inseparable in that we share the same faith. We're inseparable in this respect that we will not enter into the resurrection life of eternity one ahead of the other. We will enter into the life of God in eternity all at once, all together, at the same time, in the same, well, nanosecond would be too long for how long it will take for God to raise us from the dead, renovate us, give us resurrection bodies, and usher us into His presence so that we see the beatific vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Us and them, together. They would not be made perfect. This perfection is the perfection of eternity, the perfection that has been brought to light through the gospel of life and immortality through the resurrection of Jesus. And together, and only together, will we with all the saints who from their labors rest, both before and after the coming of Christ, will together be ushered in to God's everlasting kingdom. Well, that's our great hope. As we gather here this morning, we're not alone. We're part of this great crowd of of witnesses, as Paul, the writer will go on to say. We, we belong to the people of God. We belong to these people. We said it in, in our confession, the communion of the saints. And together, when the Lord descends and the trumpet sounds, those who are alive will not precede those who have already gone, but we will be caught up together with them in the clouds of glory to meet the Lord in the air. And so we, united, will ever be with the Lord. Let's pray. Our heart cry is that you would hasten that day we know we have duty to do here. Give us grace this week to do our duty. Go with us to the places in which we work, to the homes we live in, to the friends we know. Help us to be faithful and to live a virtuous and godly life to the praise of your glory, to love our neighbor, to love one another, and even to love our enemy for Jesus' sake. We pray that the world would not invade the church, this church, your church. We pray that we would have an eye to what is good and noble and right and lovely 
And we pray, Lord, for that day when we shall enter your presence forevermore. Hasten the day, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, we cry. In your strong name, amen.